Very, very welcome to uh, you here, uh, Sophie Strand on the Nordic Animism channel. I've really been looking so much forward for this interview. And to all the rest of you, this is Sophie Strand, who is the uh, author of Flowering Wand. Uh, and uh, she also has an upcoming novel to this this um, the summer. Did you say summer? Yes. Cool. So welcome on the, on this platform. <laughs> well, it's an honor, especially given that I have followed your work and listened to the podcast. So thank you for inviting me into the ecosystem. Well, of course. Yeah. Well, I, I was I was a little bit of a surprise. Oh, so you know I exist. Oh, wow. <laughs> when, when I wrote you. So cool. Um, yeah. What I was interested in, like, diving into uh, with you today is some of your thoughts about how do we create narratives in our day and how do we create perhaps myth or mythology in our day? Um, so yeah, that's kind of my overall question. So I don't know if you can just kind of throw out some general <laughs> thoughts. And I can, I mean, this is something I just did a course with about 15 different of my favorite scientists, thinkers, novelists, philosophers asking this question. So I definitely have had okay. to meditate on this. I mean, I think the thing to remember is that myth is a vessel for environmental knowledge and that for most of human history, knowledge transmission happened orally. And the best way to transmit your most important information, your most your important cultural paradigms, environmental know-how is to put it in a narrative that's compelling enough that you wanna tell it again and again. Narratives are also plastic, which means that they can adapt to shifting climatological and anthropological pressures. So the stories don't get brittle and break down. They're relational, they're alive. They're alive in a community and in an environmentally embedded situation. And so for me, myth is always a way, it's always a Noah's Ark. It's always an ark within which we store our important information on when to harvest the berries, how to respect the environment, how to have an honorable harvest, how to deal with individuals who create conflict in community. And I think we've lost that ecologically context sensitive way of reading myth and way of making myth, which is we've come up with this idea that myths can be deracinated from their ecosystem, from their cultural context, transplanted over thousands of years and many miles to different ecosystems and still make sense. But if we think in a kind of ecological paradigm, you can't uproot a tropical plant and then plant it in a northern country and expect it to thrive. The same is true for myth. Myth is, is an ecological eruption of certain kind of environmental know-how. Like the story of Jesus, a Mediterranean storytelling Jew, cannot be uprooted from Aramaic, from Judaism, from that from Galilee and and then still make sense somewhere else that we lose so much in translation that this these myths can lapse into dogma and then be perverted by empire and by extractive um, uh, enterprises and so that's been something I've been really interested in so how how can we reclaim myth as something that is environmentally contextual and is not anthropocentric in origin, is about a symbiotic collaboration with your web of kin in a certain place. So for me, it's really interesting to think about, we can reroute and retell modern myths as a way to understand how they have shaped who lives, who dies, what cultures get prized. We can also plant them back in their original environmental context to see what they really meant. 
rather than what they mean by value of mistranslation over time. But that doesn't mean they're going to be well adapted to where we are now. Mm. What we can do now is start to really look at where we live, the communities, the ecosystems, you know, the cultural inheritance and say, what stories matter now? You know, for me, I always encourage people to look at the actual plants and animals in your environment. For me, I'm very interested in invasive species in the Hudson Valley in New York State and how they've been demonized by a very simplistic idea of conservation ecology. And yet they seem to be doing a kind of midwifing to an ecosystem that's experiencing radical climate change. And that I have to create a wider view than just the comet streak of a brief human lifetime to start to think about what they're actually doing narratively in the landscape. So for me, I always say, look to the beings in your environment that are capricious, that are inscrutable, that are hard to understand, and there's your new mess. Totally. And and Lyle, an amazing example you, you gave there with invasive, uh, invasive species. Yeah. That, and, and to me, it seems that it would speak to an, a non-entropic way of thinking in the in entropic in the way sense that Tyson Juncker Porter uh, talks about that there's there's closed system way of thinking static ways of thinking and there are relational dynamic ways of thinking and yeah, yeah I, I totally follow you also with the the context appropriate uh, character I, mean, I, I think like some of the most fascinating thing to observe in our time is for instance movies popular movies and how how they they uh, create mythology in in ways that can sometimes seem rather destructive but also sometimes extremely like surprisingly beautiful um yeah i don't know did, did you see the uh fairly recent movie i think it's called turning red in english have you seen that no, I haven't. I have to be honest, I have watched very few movies and television shows in the past couple of years. Um, I think there's something about quarantine and being alone that okay. is the process of watching things less yeah. enjoyable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. But I no, am I, really, I mean, I'm a person who doesn't believe in high and low culture. And I think that that's like always a kind of elitist way of yeah. <laughs> creating a false, a false cut. Um, and I really love movies and TV as ways of, as, as really interesting syncretic points, points mm -hmm. where many different types of culture and types of storytelling inappropriately meld and then create something new and mm -hmm. adapted to our particular needs right now. And so I'm, I'm especially television, I think, allows for a new kind of epic storytelling that we haven't had access to in a long time. You know, movies have this idea that the narrative is condensed, it's the hero's journey, it's the it's the upward arc, and then the, the resolution. And I think that TV shows have, in a certain way, are resurrecting this idea of episodic storytelling over time. Yeah. yeah. No, that's an amazing point, then. that, that uh, the movies... And now you said the word hero's journey, <laughs> because... And that's actually uh, something that I have really been wanting to to talk to you about uh, because I heard you at uh, some other podcast uh, criticizing this particular idea of the hero's journey and how that has become the uh, monomyth of, of our day. I even saw I saw on the internet it being called the Mac myth and <laughs> and stuff like that. Can, can you just sum up what what exactly is the hero's journey and what does it? What has it done to our 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 context, our world? 
So first I'll say that I like to not re-articulate the techniques of the dominant culture and the dominant culture works by diagnosis, by critique, by analysis, by breaking things apart to understand them, by sterilizing and getting rid of the things that it thinks are no longer useful. So I don't do that. I work by addition. Awesome. <laughs> if someone is problematic or if something doesn't seem like it works, I don't throw it out. I put it on the compost heap with so many other things that it can change and adapt. And so for me, the hero's journey is not something to get rid of. It's something to place within a biodiversity of other types of narrative forms. Huh. Yeah. And I think that's really important recontextualization is we're not trying to sterilize and get rid of things that just rearticulates the dominant culture. Mm. We're trying to place it, you know, ecosystems are only resilient in as much as they are biodiverse. Yeah. <laughs> so what we need is more stories, not less, more forms, not less. I am hero's journey is a very human story and it's also a very modern story that's tied to a kind of social darwinism and very simplistic understandings of linear evolution of forking individuation so you have like you have freud misinterpreted you have darwin misinterpreted and you have science you have all of these things that have become conflated with kind of capitalist idea of progress and of, of the atomized individual as somehow ruggedly making it on their own rather than with every breath inhaling microbiome and being a self-built from otherness so you know there's no scientific you know basis for individuality and it actually has an ex the idea of the individual is a relatively modern concept. The hero's journey, I would argue the hero's journey doesn't even exist during the Romantic age and, and, and during the romances of the medieval era. I would argue that the hero's journey is an art is a backformed interpretation of stories that simplifies them and makes them easier to digest. Mm -hmm. I love Joseph Campbell came up with this idea and I love Joseph Campbell. And I never want to, he's, he's problematic whatever that word means. I do think that he's the kind of person that if he had, he had lived longer, he was curious and intellectually appetitive enough. I think that he would have changed his thinking and kept coming up with new ideas. I think that we can be critical of his primitivism, his racism, his sexism, while also seeing that his cosmological vision of how myths develop and evolve and interact is really interesting. Hmm. So for me, I've benefited from him and also seen that he needs to be tempered with other ideas and needs totally. to be added to the compost heap. So for me, mm. my idea I write about in my book, The Flowering Wand, is I don't want to get rid of the, the hero's journey, but I want to coppice it. So coppicing is this sylvan forest technique that's been used by indigenous populations worldwide for thousands of years where you cut back a tree to its stump and then it, instead of one trunk, it sprouts up like 10 different trunks. And it's a way of creating these forests where you can reliably get firewood without killing the forest. And also it creates these thickets where a biodiversity of mice and small mammals and birds begin to flourish. So it's this way of sustainably interacting with your environment and changing it. But what you do is you move from a monomyth from one trunk to a polyphony of discordant, sometimes melodious, sometimes um, antagonistic stories. And so for me, the hero's journey needs to be repopulated with other characters. And we need to realize as humans that we're not the main character. We may be the side mm. character. <laughs> and so that and that reaching the end of the story may not be what we want to do. Mm. That, you know, the, the end of the quest is in a certain way extinction. Every species goes extinct. Do we really want to reach that that cliff edge now? Or would we rather meander and have a side quest? I really like that. One thing, could you just articulate 
and then I'll probably edit it back before. Uh, who is Joseph Campbell? Where did he write the heroes uh, about the hero's journey? And what is the hero's journey basically about? Just so that people will be on board. Get up Google. <laughs> no, it's, Joseph Campbell is a famous mythologist. Um, he's an American writer. He was a professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College, and he worked in comparative mythology and religion. Um, and he wrote a series called The Masks of God, where he kind of showed that all mythic systems are kind of related to each other and involved, even when they have different names for similar archetypes. And, it, you know, he used a lot of Jungian psychology. He used a lot of literary theory. It was a very modern look at mythology, but it was helpful. And, you know, it was a way of showing also that, you know, certain kind of Christological visions are relatively new and they flowered out of much older traditions and then co-opted them. And, you know, he, he was the one who noticed this hero's journey, which is a real, it is a real narrative arc that can exist within a wider story. Mm -hmm. He noticed it, but the way in which he highlighted it, I think he wrote it with a hero with a thousand faces. Uh, yeah, a hero with a thousand faces is this famous work that then becomes kind of crystallized and fetishized yeah. <laughs> um, within literary theory, within psychological theory. Um, and it, it's interesting, but it's not the only myth. And I no. think that's what we have to, we need to problematize. And I also, it doesn't bear much resemblance to epic storytelling, which is never linear, which is always episodic, which is more yeah. holarchic and behavior. I mean, I'm very interested in the history of the rhapsodes and the early epic storytellers in the Mediterranean and how they're never telling you a linear narrative. It's always like Chinese boxes or Russian dolls. It's a stacking of stories inside of each other. And in fact, with each retelling, the Rhapsode would be expected to recombine these episodes in a different order and a different way to adapt to a fresh circumstance. So Hero's Journey is not plastic and flexible in the way that episodic epic storytelling is. Awesome. No, I uh, yes, just hugging back to what you said before, I totally love your idea of multiplying um like uh i think i think the the uh there's something about the the hero's journey which one thing is that there's that one model uh yeah. but as you said like i actually feel a weird sort of almost like um uh kinship with this joseph joseph campbell kind of yeah. thing because what like from my kind of superficial knowledge what, what they actually did these guys are what Campbell did was he built on some of those um, early Russian structuralists and these kind of people who had actually studied traditional culture, that actually studied like uh, um, fairy tales and <laughs> Russia and so on. And then it's as if that this traditional uh, narrative tradition goes into all the whole young structuralist Joseph Campbell machine. Then it comes into Christopher Fogler. Do you know that guy? Who's he? Because he wrote all all, all the way back in, in uh, eighty five. He wrote a seven pages long pamphlet that was basically hero's journey for dummies, and then he started dispersing it uh, among uh, filmmakers in Hollywood, and it became the bible for uh, Hollywood filmmaking. This uh, Christopher Fogler's uh, instruction to the hero's journey. And then it's actually a whole circle because it begins with the most popular culture you can imagine, 
uh, old Russian babushkas, you know, telling their, their fairy tales. And then it comes all the way back to complete popular culture in Hollywood film production. And that is a very powerful arc that's being made there. It's actually traditional culture being taken in, being developed in an, in an academic uh, or with an academic mind and then being brought back into circulation. I wish I, I wish I could do that, but uh, uh, I, I guess it, it probably requ requires quite a lot. But I think I think it's a. It, but then of course, what we get is also this Mac myth, this monomyth, where we have all these. I, I was just checking out on the hero's journey a little bit now, and I mean, when I look at it, I feel I get decidedly the feeling. Is this like a PlayStation game or something like that? It's like yeah. meeting the mentor, seizing the sword, and returning with the elixir and these kind of stages. Uh, but um, where oh, my impression of... It seems like a way that a traumatized cultures try and create some kind of control system to explain the chaos. Mm. But the problem is that those things are usually... Those survival mechanisms are usually not very helpful in the long run with negotiated mm. uncertainty and shifting circumstances. <clears throat> so I would say that her hero's journey seems like a closed fist. It's a way of trying to create meaning inside of entropy, but it's not necessarily the most flexible, resilient, sustainable way of making stories mm. happen. Yeah. 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 And you can also look at how is it actually being used then? Yeah. Because uh, for instance, when I looked at this uh, Campbell uh, system there, the returning with the elixir, uh, what would then be the elixir in contemporary movies? Well, typically it would be some sort of inevitable message, mess, life message or life wisdom or something like that. And typically in Hollywood movies, that would be about self-reliance. You just believe in yourself and then you can do it. Don't criticize the system. Don't criticize the system. You know, and and there is, I think, there's a real, um, there's a real, uh, uh, yeah, control system going on in the way that that particular aspect is being praised. Think about um, it's called Moana in English. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I, I friends <laughs> whose children love it. <laughs> okay, yeah, but it's quite amazing. It's it's quite amazing, and there there is an absolutely mind-blowing moment in the end of this movie where this Polynesian hero, this young woman, uh, she is, um, well, what is annoying about it is that she's realizing that she can do it. She just has to believe in herself. It's that old, like, cliche, but that's then illustrated with this ghost armada of her Polynesian ancestors that just come, like, uh, kind of way sweeping over the sea in their ghost ships and looks at her and looks like and it's absolutely you know Walt Disney how they can make stuff uh, extremely powerful um but if you think about this as an elixir why is why is it her self-relation that is the solution and not her relation to those ancestors like it's it's as if these ancestors remain in a modern sphere of non-existence somehow and she just had to individuate or whatever it's called uh yeah is i mean 
It's interesting to me because I think a lot of very new age interpretations of lineage and ancestry kind of rearticulate the hero's journey, which is there's a singular line that you can trace. There's an origin. There's an original cause and end. Um, and you know, for me, lineage is 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 not a straight line. It's it's a interspecies and reticulated web with multiple doors of entry. It's rhizomatic. You know, there were complex bacteria that created your multicellular life that human beings only learned how to develop uteruses through a viral incursion um, that helped to develop the syntrophoblast layer of the placenta. Like I think lineage and ancestry has become very simplified and anthropocentric too, which is if you're really gonna save the day, you're gonna realize that you are a holobind of otherness and you are produced by the interface of, of your relationships. You come into being not as an individual, but as an interaction between you, your environment, and your relationships. Exactly, yeah. Amen, amen. <laughs> yeah. Really um, awesome, awesome formulation. And there is a, and, and this uh, unilinear idea of ancestry, which yeah. you find a lot among uh, in popular culture today, like I descend from Scottish or something like that. Uh, that it is. Uh, it, it does have. I think it has roots of nationalism, which carries oh, in it the modern epistemology that it's there's something inside me that defines my self-image rather than a relation to raven or uh, bear or turtle or something like that. Um, exactly, and it, it's all about what you can diagnose and see and trace. It's all about control. Can I trace my ancestry back? The truth is there's so many different beings that have gone into making you. You have matter in you that once lived inside a pterodactyl or a dead star. Like, come on, let's juice this a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's time. <laughs> um, yeah. And when you look at how contemporary indigenous people, how they think about ancestry, uh, then they regularly, it seems that they actually seek other. For instance, you have... Um, indigenous people who are actively focusing on the fact that they have European ancestry, that becomes important. Yeah, Lila June is about that in such a fashion. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And also, there are also uh, there's some uh, Aboriginal Australians uh, that I have contact to through ties, and they, they, they think in, I think they, they, they consider it as dream lines in ancestry, and then they're focused on those places in Europe where these lines are, and this, of course, it's 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 another level than uh, than thinking I come from mycelium, mycelium, um, but uh, but um, yeah, just this cool. one lineage. Yeah, I mean, and you look in many different traditions. People believe that they their ancestry is a place, like like yeah. like that they arrived from the place we were born from a clan of animals. You know, I mean, for me, my joke is always. So I arrived in this life with a deathly fear of rabies, like really like, 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 a, what, what are they called when you have like a very bad fear? And have, phobia. A phobia, like a phobia of rabies. It's interesting because I've also had all these interactions with rabid animals and then had to get rabies shots. <laughs> but um, I oftentimes joke that I come from the raccoon clan and I lived like eight lives as raccoons that died of rabies and came into this life with that inheritance. <laughs> And if I have like a lineage, it's like a raccoon lineage. I mean, it's a joke. It's a way of, of, of composting this very anthropocentric idea of reincarnation as being like, you know, I was Cleopatra, like, you know, but it's also complicating this idea of like, who are we claimed by? Who are we the, the you know, 
the continuance of. Mm. I also think that the fact that the fact of joking with stuff like that, that yeah. might actually be a way of of uh, creating this uh, plurality of growth and narrative because uh, the trickster character of stuff like playfulness and joking, these are actually fairly important parts of innovation. And I think that in the, in many ways, barren uh, um, modernist culture that we have, I think innovation is actually going to be, and playfulness is going to be core functions, basically. I agree. I, th I think that in a culture that is so obsessed with stable value dualisms, with heroes and villains, the trickster is the antidote. I, I you know, yeah. Blake says excessive grief laughs. And for me, that means that when you see the absurdity of, of our machinations, you laugh and you step into that improvisational trickster mode. Um, where you step sideways into things. You don't take yourself too seriously and you don't take any ideas too seriously. Um, yeah. I was actually going to ask you, I I do not have any kind of familiarity with North Norse mythology rather than just kind of like a cursory understanding. And yet the figure of Loki has been repeatedly appearing in my life in the past month. And I was wondering if you could give me any of the Loki download. <laughs> the Loki download, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I see Loki very much in uh in 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 parallel with the West African trickster issue. Oh yeah, uh, I heard you talk to Bio about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of course, you saw that. Uh, but I mean, to me, Loki. Uh, the uh, important thing about Loki is that he is the um the initiative that creates and that's disruptive initiative that creates narrative. So, oh. uh, and I think that is so profoundly trickstery. Like you have the, um, uh, when you have the, the typical Nordic myths as, as we know them, then they start with Loki doing something transgressive uh, and super mischievous. And then the whole narrative springs from that. And that, is, it's an authorial impulse almost. It's like the yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And like and and if you compare that to to the um the uh issue mythology, which is much more complete, we know it much better. Norse mythology is so far ago, and we know it from tiny, tiny texts. Uh then there is this idea that the trickster is sort of the initial creative impulse that starts putting the world into being, start the world unfolding, pushing creation out of a stasis. And I think that is very much there with Loki. Uh, but then um, the, I would say that the Nordic mythology that we know, it talks about Loki a bit like Roman mythology talks about Saturn. He's bound inside a cave. Yeah. However, uh, I think that a contemporary, contextually appropriate mythology for today would not talk about a trickster such as Loki as bound. I think that is that is something that's dependent on that particular context and the systems of relating that these mythologies were supporting. Uh, today, I think he would probably be, uh, uh, or he is probably very much alive and alive and well and walking about. For instance, there's a, a very strong impulse among queer empowerment people to identify with Loki Loki, because Loki is uh, sexually transgressive. 
Um, yeah, I know. that's what I'm, I find. It's interesting. So my area of study is Mediterranean, like trickster gods. Like we have Dionysus as kind of like a Loki-like figure. Um, and even, I would say even the figure of Yeshua has a kind of Lokian kind of trickster who? idea. Like, uh, uh, Rabbi Yeshua. Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, totally. Totally. He's a mega trickster. Storytelling, disrupting dominant paradigms um, in interruptive pedagogy. So yeah, it's interesting to, to think about Loki also as, as being part of that same like Dionysian system. Um, yeah. Totally. But I also think, I also think that when you, when you look at these ancient mythologies, often you will find that different deities have trickster aspects to them so uh so in in uh, and i i totally agree that that jesus is, is, is has very strong trickster aspects well not not when he is not when he becomes a, an imperial artifact but when when we replant him in his context yeah yeah when when we, when we read the bible we meet some of the some of the i mean yeah and also like uh like in in the nordic myth for instance uh odin for instance, also have significant trickster aspects, huh, and yeah. and he, I think he carries some of these sort of uh, weaver of tales kind yeah. of trickster aspects that in Africa you will find with uh, spider trickster or something like that. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was yeah, I was doing research about the the name Loki and how it was thought to maybe initially mean um, something to do with 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 weaving entangling. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, it, I, I haven't heard that one. There's a lot of theories about that. I know. But, I bet. And yeah. I, lo I love that. I love that impulse to find the original meaning because it's always going to fail, but the impulse does draw you. Speaking of narrative propulsion, it draws you on a journey. Yeah. So that search for origins, it, it, the search is the important part, not exactly. finding the answer. Yeah.